Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about not only the philosophers, uh, a couple of philosophers, but we're going to be talking about how their philosophies were actually put into practice, uh, especially going into the 20th century. And the two philosophers I want to talk a little bit about today are going to be Adam Smith and Karl Marx. Now, both of them, um, when they set out their economic systems, and Marx was actually highly influenced by Adam Smith, uh, set them out very differently from the way they were actually put into practice. Uh, going into Adam Smith first, you know, people who like to talk about free market capitalism like to talk about Adam Smith's invisible hand and the will of the market and, you know, letting the market decide everything. And yes, all of these things are in Adam Smith. He definitely said all of that. But Adam Smith also put in some very particular warnings about what not to do with capitalism, about what not to let happen. Uh, and one of the things that he warned against was monopolies and large corporations. Um, he talks about the fact that if you let uh, monopolies take place, where the entire industry is you know, controlled by one or only a few people, uh, it not only becomes less efficient, but more expensive. Um, when he talked about the free market, what he meant was small business. He saw there should be a free market as far as small businesses only. Um, this, you know, is where you get competition uh, because you can compete against other small businesses. You know, if you have a baker in town who's charging way too much for, you know, bread and using very low quality, making very low quality bread, it's possible for somebody else to come along and start to compete. And this will force the first baker to either raise the quality and lower the prices or go out of business. And so this is the type of free market capitalism that he was talking about. These types of small business investments that are healthy for a society. They're healthy um, in that they keep prices down, they keep quality up, and they encourage competition. When he talks about monopolies and large corporations, he was basing this off of the British East India Tea Company because he had seen what happens with a company that large. And, you know, they basically get to set the price on tea and charge as much as they want, you know, when they, when they were the biggest tea company in the world. And not only do they do that, Smith saw that these large corporations, when they get too large, will not only destroy the economic system, they will start to destroy the political system as well. Now, how does this play out into the 20th century? Well, think about the, you know, some of the capitalist practices in the 20th century. You know, if you go into, you know, talking about just, let's say, the meatpacking industry for one. I've talked about The Jungle by Upton Sinclair in an earlier podcast. And, you know, in The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, he talks about the meatpacking industry in Chicago and how, you know, the industry was basically owned by just a few companies and they were able to uh, basically, you know, lower the quality to almost nothing, serve food that was practically poison, exploit the workers, um, you know, and basically be above the law. Because they had so much money, because they had so much influence, they were able to keep the um, 
FDA and keep the local law enforcement and local uh, political system not only in check and keep them from interfering, but they actually subverted the whole system so that the system was backing them up. And this isn't just something in the meatpacking industry. If you look at most of the bills that are passed in this country, uh, they're passed with big business, uh, big banking in mind. These these large companies, these large corporations have gotten to the point where they are actually able to get everything they want and the will of the majority of the citizens is pretty much cast aside. And this is something that Adam Smith very clearly argued about and, and very clearly warned about, saying if you let these companies become too large, this is what will happen. And it 100% is what happened. And, you know, now you've got companies that are so large that it would be impossible for some other company to come up and, uh, you know, compete with them. You're not going to be able to, well, I'm going to buy a small farm and I'm going to compete with, you know, the big meatpacking industry. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do it. Um, you can't compete with the uh, big agricultural systems. Um, Monsanto, for one, is huge. You know, you can't come in and say, I'm going to, you know, uh, drive Monsanto out of business. Monsanto has enough resources, enough lawyers, uh, enough political influence that they would be able to ruin you before you could even do that. So everything that Adam Smith actually warned about, you, you come to see. And one of the things that Adam Smith also talks about in his Wealth of Nations is that the basis of all labor, or I'm sorry, the basis of all wealth is labor. And this is something that Marx picked up on. You know, most people who aren't familiar with Marx think he's just some radical that come up with all of these crazy ideas out of nowhere. But Marx was actually an economist that was working with real numbers, working from real sources, and you know, really analyzing what was going on in the markets. And Adam Smith was a big influence on Marx. In fact, that's where he gets the idea of, you know, labor being the source of all wealth. And he kind of runs with that. And Marx's ideas, uh, very much like Smith's ideas, um, become very corrupted. Uh, Marx's main premise was that since labor is the basis of all wealth, the people who are producing the wealth should have a greater say-so in how that wealth is distributed and should also have a greater portion of that wealth. And what Marx saw was that the people who were producing all of the wealth got very little of it and had no say-so in how that was produced. And you can see this is true. You know, the workers don't get to say if you're going to export their job to another country. The workers don't get to say how the corporation is going to spend the profits, you know, whether it's going to spend the profits on improving the factory, on improving wages, or whether it's going to spend the profits to, you know, buy off politicians so that they can uh, get away with more things and get rid of regulations, including safety and health regulations. So a lot of what, you know, Marx and Smith were talking about as far as critiques of capitalism, you can see. And Marx's, you know, critique of capitalism isn't so much that he believed having wealth was bad. 
um, he really, you know, starts this from the central idea of the workers are creating it, they should have say-so in what happens to it. Now, when you look at how this played out into the 20th century, uh, Marx never saw countries like Russia, like China, like North Korea, as being countries that would be that would embrace communism. He saw this happening more in Germany and in England, in places like that, places that were highly industrialized, places that had a fairly well-educated uh, workforce, because he said that the movement would have to come from the workers. Now, this is one of the places where the language sometimes people use gets twisted, because he talks about a dictatorship of the proletariat. And the way the communist systems of the 20th and 21st century have worked out is they're dictatorships, but they're dictatorships not of the proletariat, uh, but of the political party and of the person, whoever is at the top of that political party. Marx would be very opposed to the Soviet Union, China, North Korea. He would have seen these as exactly what he warned against. Because if you actually read Capital, Das Kapital, he talks about, he warns against this the same way Adam Smith warned against, you know, large businesses, large corporations and monopolies. Marx argued against um, communism coming from a, sort of a, a upper class intellectual elite. Uh, he saw that if this were the origin of it, it would become even more repressive than the system of capitalism. He saw that, you know, the workers would have even fewer rights. Uh, Marx would look at what happened in the Soviet Union and China and say, this actually took the workers backward. It was, you know, what he warned against. Uh, because, in, you know, Marx's, again, his, his idea wasn't that wealth was bad. It was that the people who create the wealth should have all the say-so. And with the Soviet Union and China and North Korea and the other countries that embraced communism, the there was just a change of who the boss was. The boss went from being the capitalists and the owners of the business to under the communist system, it went to the communist party and the premier or you know whoever was at the head of the party. So it did nothing for the workers. In fact, it took their voice away even more. Um, so you can see that the two systems, uh, from the beginning, from the way they were set up, uh, people took what they were not supposed to do and did it that way with both systems. Now, with both systems, there is a little bit of uh, naivete as far as uh, how, how perfectly they could function. Um, there, there was a bit of a sense that, you know, they took it too far, but you have to remember, too, during this time um, that these two were created, uh, people felt that you could create a system that would be perfect and would run forever. And one of the things that history has shown that, you know, we've been able to see with the hindsight of a lot more time passing, a lot more history coming to pass, is that any system set up will never be a perfect perpetual motion system. It will never be able to keep functioning properly uh, as it's designed. You know, the, the idea was you can set this up, you can plug the humans into it, and then you never have to think about it again. It will just function on its own. And that's not the way the world works. 
for several reasons. One, the conditions when you set up the system will not always be the conditions that the world is in. You know, things change. History changes. Technology changes. Um, you know, these things all affect what's going on. So you might set up something that may work really well in the 17 or 1800s, and then when you get to the 20th and 21st century, 22nd century, 23rd century, these things work not at all. You know, the people who want to go back to, you know, do things 100% the way the founders did, whether it's the founders of capitalism, whether it's the founders of communism, uh, are, are living in a little bit of a dream world because we don't live in that time period anymore. Uh, things have moved on. Things have changed. We know things now they didn't know back then. <clears throat> There's also, when you start to look into these systems, um, a, a little bit of a, a sense that you have to pair one system with a particular political system, one economic system and one political system, and that's the only way they can be paired. And there's nothing about this that is really the truth. You could have capitalism with a dictatorship. You could have communism with democracy and, you know, any combination of the, of the, of those. You can have either of them with a republic. Uh, the economic system does not have to control the political system. You can have a political system that does give a voice to everyone. And in a lot of ways, these are the failures of both capitalism and communism, because even though in the capitalist countries, countries they tend to let people vote, you know, we talked about, I talked about the fact earlier in this episode that often the vote of the people doesn't mean very much, and it's the will of the of the large corporations and of the wealthy that actually get put into practice, that actually get done. So in a sense, you're you're getting a show vote. You're you're allowed to vote, but you know, we're not really going to pay attention to what you vote for. We're still going to do things, however the you know the wealthiest parts of society want them done. So as Smith said, it completely you know subverted the system. In the communist systems where they're authoritarian. You know, authoritarianism there was the problem with communism. It wasn't communism itself. Communism and capitalism could both work if, as long as you have a good political system you've paired it with. If you, if you pair it with an authoritarian system, whether it's an oligarchy or, uh, you know, a straight-up uh, authoritarian, uh, basically a modernization of a monarch, an autocrat, uh, they're going to be a failure in either case because they're going to only look to what are the needs of a very small group or of one person at the top. And everybody else is going to be sacrificed for that top. So the failures of capitalism and the failures of communism were foreseen by the people who really wrote and, and thought out the systems. Now, as I said, both of them also had a little bit of... Uh, uh, naive uh, understanding of human nature. You know, the, the Marx thought that, you know, humans could completely eventually do away with property. Uh, and this has to do with the fact that Marx was uh, a follower of Hegel. He believed that history was moving uh, towards some ideal. With Hegel, history was moving towards freedom. With Marx, it was moving more towards this sort of communist utopia. 
And anytime you think you can have a utopia, whether it's capitalist, communist, socialist, whatever type of utopia you think there can be, um, this is naive thinking. Because human nature and, as I said, historical events will always cause you to have to rethink things. The other way that this kind of works into a problem in the 20th century is in the 20th century and 21st century, we've kind of gotten into the idea that you either have to have all capitalism or all communism. And there is zero reason that capitalism, communism, and even socialism couldn't all exist peacefully side by side in the world. And not only is it possible for them to exist side by side within the world, it, it's possible for them to exist side by side within a single country as well. You know, think of it this way. You could have a capitalist system when you're dealing with small businesses. Small business with, you know, capitalism works very well. It's a great system. But once you start getting into large businesses, capitalism tends to move into the corporations and the monopolies that Smith warned about. In these cases, you might have somewhat of a, uh, in these levels of business, you might have more of a communist uh, uh, approach to it. And by communist, it doesn't mean that nobody owns anything. It means the workers control everything. You know, that was always Marx's idea, that the workers should say how the wealth is distributed and, you know, what the, what the profits are used for, whether that's to build schools, to build parks, you know, to put into housing, whatever. Um, so you could see having these larger uh, companies as worker-owned. You know, the employees get together. And this is something that we do have in this country. We do have worker-owned businesses. We have co-ops. You know, farmers get together. They um, all decide on, you know, how they're going to sell things, where they're going to sell things. Uh, Silicon Valley is kind of built on a communist-type system where you have, you know, the workers are the ones who make the decisions. They work Monday through Friday on designing their products or doing whatever they're doing and or Monday through Thursday, I should say. And then on Friday, they might get together and say, okay, now, do which direction do we want to take the company? How do we want to, you know, split up our profits? What do we want to put in? How much do we want to put into more research and development? You know, how much do we want to put into, you know, our retirements and things like that? Uh, and then for socialism, socialism tends to work better for infrastructure things. Uh, the bigger infrastructure should never be privately owned by a company. It should be something that is uh, kind of like a public utility. Roads, power grids, these should all be more or less under the socialist model. And all three of these together can exist under a republic or under a democracy. You know, the, the problem with the socialists and communist models was always that the people had no say-so. Well, if the people have say-so and, you know, the the ability to control things, uh, then they can be a very good system. It's when the people don't have any say-so that they're a very bad system. When the government tells you what they're going to do and what you have to put up with, that's when it's a bad system. But when the government is run by the people, either by an actual republic or democratic means, that means the government becomes your employee, not your boss. And that's a very different system. You know, one of the things that people often <clears throat> are misunderstanding in republics is they think 
the government is in charge. And even people in the government in the United States think they're in charge. They're not in charge. This is one of the problems that I've had with many of the presidents and, you know, uh, political figures is that they get the idea that they're running things. And they have a very uh, misconstrued idea of their role. Um, the role of a government in a representative society is you are an employee of the people. Whatever the people want, that's what you give them, period. You're not a big shot. You're not a king. You're not an emperor. You don't get to boss people around. You have to listen to what the people say, or you get bounced out on your ear and somebody will get put in that does what the people have to say. You know, and this also goes into, you know, talking about systems, political systems. This goes back to something even the founding fathers of this country warned against with the political system. They always said that if it became a two-party system, it would be the end of it. Things would not function well. And what have we done? We've let it become a two-party system. So now it's an either-or. You've either got to be all for the Democrats or all for the Republicans. So one of the things that on the political level that would need to happen is we need to break up the two-party system and into lots of little parties where the parties will have to get together and, um, you know, make concessions to each other and cooperate instead of I'm getting my way or nothing and the other side saying I'm getting my way or nothing. And then you end up with the deadlock we have and you end up with only the people at the top who have the ability to pay off both sides are going to get what they want. So a lot of these philosophical ideas that I've been covering and I will continue to cover in future episodes, you know, as we talk about them, I'm going to try to bring attention to them, but also think about the fact of, you know, how does this work out in theory and then how is this put, in, put into practice? And how much of it that it's been put into practice has actually been put into practice despite the warnings of the people who created the system, and how much of it has been a failure, not because of, you know, necessarily people not heeding the warnings, but because, you know, uh, technology has changed, the world has changed, society has changed, and so they've become outdated ideas. Uh, one of the most dangerous things that you can do is to think that we can go back to the good old days because for one there were never any good old days uh, there have always been bad times and good times and struggles and things that we got right and things that we got wrong and again you can't go back there even if it was perfect because conditions have changed the world is not the same place you know people in the united states look to the 50s as you know, the golden age and, you know, America was very prosperous. Well, yeah, we were very prosperous because the rest of the world was bombed into rubble during World War II. You know, the our industries didn't really have much competition in Europe or Asia because Europe and Asia was pretty much in ruins and rebuilding. Their cities were destroyed, their factories were destroyed, and since the war didn't happen here, all of ours were still intact. So the idea that, oh, we can just go back to the 50s is unrealistic. And again, the 50s were not a perfect time period anyway. You know, when you really understand the 50s, you realize segregation was the law of the land. Um, you know, 
child abuse and spouse abuse were not against the law unless you happened to kill your spouse or kill your child. Um, you know, people had very few rights unless you were the wealthy. And, and there's sort of this idea that, you know, white men all had a bunch of rights. And that was true if you were a wealthy white man. It was not true for everybody. But wealthy people have, very wealthy people have always had more rights than everyone else. And this, again, is because we have gone against what Smith said and allowed the wealthy to become large corporations, large monopolies, and they've been able to subvert the political system to cater to whatever their needs are. Okay, I'm going to break off this episode here. I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.